the famous quote is, can it really a small group of people change the world? Oh yeah, it's the only thing that ever has. In 2007, just as I was coming on late 2007 as the president of Elanco, we were not in the top 10 of the industry company-wise. We had the worst portfolio. We were US-based, not international. We were in livestock, not pets. I mean, nobody, if you said circle four companies that would remain, nobody would have circled Elanco in 2007, 2008. It's the hundreds of stories as we're building this new headquarters. I want a whole entire bottom floor of this new headquarters to be the moments and the stories of small groups of three and four people that, that changed the company. I mean, I tell people, I had four people call me from Mexico on a rainy Friday night in 2008 and say, we have to buy this dairy technology. I said, you're crazy. And the calls wouldn't stop. The PowerPoints wouldn't stop. We ended up buying this company not on my will, on, on theirs and, and, and the intelligence, and they did it the right way, that transaction ended up funding our pet business. Today, we're 55% pets. And if you're in the animal health business, you gotta be in the dog and the cat business. I go back and say those four people on that rainy Friday night in Mexico may have changed our company. Hi, folks. I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast that showcases business leaders who are doing good, doing well, and doing it sustainably. Today, I'm talking with Jeff Simmons, president and CEO of Elanco, a leading supplier of pharmaceutical products that ensures the health of all animals, from livestock to household pets. Elanco has a rich history of environmental stewardship and was the first organization in its sector to align its commitments with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Throughout his tenure, Jeff has built a corporate culture that values the development of creative ideas and opens the door for small groups of problem solvers to make a massive difference. He has built an amazing business that is doing good things in agriculture and making the world a more sustainable place. So I want to start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I uh, grew up in uh, upstate New York, as we say, the, the orchard to the Big Apple uh, in the Finger Lakes area. From uh, three generations in the agricultural industry, my dad grew up in the dairy business and made a decision he didn't want to milk cows all his life, so bought a, a Welch vineyard and I would say um, rode the highs and the lows of trying to grow fruit in an environment like uh, upstate New York. You have, you have a couple good years and a couple bad years back to back usually. Yeah. But did you always know you wanted to be in that agricultural space then? I, I did. I would say it was, a, it was an entrepreneurial family. We grew up really, um, you know, struggling as farmers did, uh, especially in the 70s and 80s. We became very entrepreneurial on, we started a garbage business. We sold the grape brush for Rees. So one year we made more money off the brush than we did off the grapes. So it was probably as much entrepreneurial as agricultural, but I you yeah. know, headed down a path of being kind of a small farm type of uh, a guy that, uh, that's what I thought my future was going to be as well. I remember I, I was talking with um, another woman, Tina May, from Land Lakes recently, and she said the exact same thing about growing up on the farm, that the family was always doing something else. I guess these days we'd call it a side hustle, but it's a little, it was a little different back then. <laughs> yeah, you know, you kind of, I think, and you, I see, I've seen this over 30, almost 40 years now in agriculture, you know, I don't care if you're a cattleman or you're a fish farmer, or you, there's a few things that come with it is, is one is you understand 
the environment well because you live off the land. You are yeah. conscious of the weather. You Failure is not an option. You just say, we're going to be here. We're going to figure this out. I think the other is humility. I see this as I serve farmers every day and veterinarians is keep your head down, do your thing. We're in the world now of right influencers and social media is probably agriculture's biggest problem is the, the roots come from humility and yeah. advocacy is not a natural thing from this profession. Yeah. And so you go to Cornell and you get your degree in marketing and agricultural economics. So I, I want to get a quick understanding of what that study circuit is like. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's the study of business all around the application of agriculture. It's probably one of the top land-grant uh, universities. Almost every state has one. You go to a land-grant school, you go into the School of Agriculture. Wow, I was just back at Cornell uh, after many years uh, this, this past weekend. And, you know, as I say, it used to be about farming and producing food. Now it's about animal health, human health, nutritional health, environmental health, and agriculture, economics, and marketing is all around the business of that. And I sure. knew that's what I wanted to do was to do that. So that's uh, that's what I studied and really, uh, really enjoyed. And then then the journey began after the uh, the days of graduating from Cornell in, uh, in the late 80s. I want to start on the journey. Just a sec. I wanted a couple more background questions. Yeah. Um, where's home for you now? Yeah, so I've been in Indiana. Um, uh, Elanco, kind of the company I'm with, uh, moved me out here in the in in the early in 1990, and I've been here since. And uh, had a chance to live around the world uh, with my family. I got married to uh, my college uh, close close friend uh, Annette, and uh, we have six kids. I jokingly say we had a kid every time we moved with Elanco and decided to stop <laughs> after six moves. So uh, it took uh, Annette and I uh, three continents and six kids, three girls, three boys, and uh, life is life is great. That's outstanding. I mean, I am curious, before we get into the, the, the work side of work, like how do you balance that? How do you get home for dinner with six kids on a regular basis and still build this incredible company? Time is everything. And I, I'm a big believer in being very intentional with your time to be able to stretch yourself, yes, to create more capacity. But I think the secret is what I call, you know, if manufacturing plants that run ideally have a great SOP, standard operating procedure, mm -hmm. we need a PSOP. What is your personal standard operating procedure? And you should constantly be looking at the rhythm of your life, the schedule of your life. And don't cheat yourself because that naturally is what happens. So I think one thing I, I give my wife and, and my professional uh, assistant here that have helped me is I manage my time. I schedule it. I color code my calendar for the seven categories. It's a little bit you know, anal on that, but I think it's important. I remember one thing I remember is during the 10 years when most of my kids were younger and at home, I promised my wife that, hey, I would be home. On a quarterly basis, every three months, 70 uh, or so nights, count the weekends. That can be 23, 24 nights of travel. Sure. And at six to nine at night, the cell phone stayed in a drawer most nights, most times. And I played ping pong to doing math homework because yeah. that was a crucial window of time and a window of my life that I had to show up. Now, look, that, that, that all sounds ideal. It was clunky. It was back and forth. I always say everyone can recover from a bad week, a bad year. And uh, kids are resilient and kids remember the windows and the moments more than they do the whole period of time. Yeah. Time is the asset we don't get back, you know? That's right. You've built an entire decades-long career at Elanco, but tell us how it all started. 
my dad had this kind of approach uh, on the farm was everyone leaves for two years and then you can come back, but you got to leave for two years. So my older brother leaves for two years, takes on a job after school and he comes back. So I am at Cornell finishing my last year and I'm like, well, I've got to find the right opportunity, have some fun, but uh, I'm not going to tell a whole lot of people, especially the employer, but I'm going back after two years. So I actually interviewed with Elanco at Cornell because they had a role, seemed like a good role, but uh, it was in animals. I was a plant guy. I'm not sure, but hey, it was, it was near a town where my farm was, my family farm. So I took, interviewed, got, got the second interview, flew to Indianapolis. And I still remember this. I tell the story a lot. As I said, uh, I remember driving back to the airport, putting a quarter in the payphone, calling my father and uh, May of, I guess, April of 1989 and saying, I know this isn't Welch's or a fruit company like you want me to work for, but let me tell you something. First, it's not Elanco, it's Elanco. I got the company name wrong in the interview. That's not good. But I said, hey, they laugh a lot here and they talk like it's their business. My pig business, my product, my campaign. To this day, tell people 33 years later, I am here because of those two things. The laughing a lot is culture and yeah. the my is ownership. I am here because there is a deep ownership and a purpose and there is a culture of laughter and fun, people not wanting to leave. And uh, that's why I'm here is those two that's reasons. Awesome. So I chose Elanco. I wrote on my job application. I'm mobile. I'll go as far south as the Pennsylvania border from upstate New York. I don't want to go to New England and I don't want to go to Ohio. Otherwise, I'm pretty flexible. Six months in, we lose a patent battle, the product I'm supposed to sell in upstate New York gets ended and I get transferred to Indianapolis. And that was my first, what I call comfort line. I tell my kids every week, every month, you got to step over a comfort line. And I stepped over and I moved to Indianapolis knowing I only had 18 months and I was going back to the farm and kind of the rest is history. I'm now 33, almost 34 years in and uh, I haven't gone back. And uh, yeah. here I am. So that, that's, that's a little bit of the journey. Folks always said something similar. You can't not want what you don't know. So you have to be willing to take the step yeah. out there and, and see what else is out there to figure out if it's something that fits or not. And my, my lifeline, some of that always when I mentor people, the highs and the lows, and I always say the lows can be just as powerful. I think everyone yeah. knows it gets harder as the funnel gets tighter. When you don't have a mortgage, you don't have kids, you don't, you've got to be as bold as ever then. Nobody defines sure. your ceiling then. But the comfort lines in today's society, when you have a mortgage, you have kids, you have an aging parent, comfort lines get harder to find. And your body and your mind are not as resilient to step over them. And I, that's one yeah. thing in my mentoring, I always say, come on, define a comfort line and get over it. Yeah. I have, have to imagine there are countless stories that helped you craft your own leadership style, um, that helped you define you know, your career experience. I'm curious if any particular stories stand out as as really pivotal to both your experience at Elenco and just who you've become as a leader. All the stories have one theme that really excite me. And the, the stories of, I think the, the famous quote is, can it really a small group of people change the world? Oh yeah, it's the only thing that ever has. 
in 2007, just as I was coming on late 2007 as the, the president of Elanco, I mean, we were not in the top 10 of the industry company-wise. We had the worst portfolio. We were U.S.-based, not international. We were in livestock, not pets. I mean, nobody, if you said circle four companies that would remain, nobody would have circled Elanco. Well, it's the hundreds of stories. As we're building this new headquarters, I, I want a whole entire bottom floor of this new headquarters to be the moments and the stories of small groups of three and four people that changed the company. I had four people call me from Mexico on a rainy Friday night in 2008 and say, we have to buy this dairy technology. I said, you're crazy. And the calls wouldn't stop. The PowerPoints wouldn't stop. We ended up <laughs> buying this company, not on my will on theirs and the intelligence, and they did it the right way, that transaction ended up funding our pet business. Today, we're 55% pets. And if you're in the animal health business, you got to be in the dog and the cat business. I go back and say those four people on that rainy Friday night in Mexico may have changed our company. And so to me, it's, it's just like any other great movement or great historical story. Elanco's been built on small groups of four, 10, 15 people deeply passionate, never losing sight of the bigger vision that have made the company what it is. I think that's an awesome illustration of Elanco's unique culture, but I'm also curious how you approach culture and leadership. I know you talk about laughter being key, and it seems like you, along with the organization, do put a huge value on the humanity of everybody. I'm curious if you'd tell yeah. us a story that you recently told me about your time in Brazil and how pivotal that was in your journey towards leadership. You know, one, one of the things I, I believe in Make sure you have balcony moments. Balcony moments are when you see what's going on even in your own life. Journaling, stopping at the end of the day, or, or talking some about it back to your family. That's why I give credit to my wife, Annette. She and I, it's constant dialogue every night about playing back the day, the videotape. And uh, that's what great teams do is they look at the videotape. And look, I, I went to Brazil. Eli Lilly told us not to. We had two daughters and then... Uh, 2000, 1999, it was pretty dangerous down there. But we said, hey, this, we felt led to go. We went. It was life-changing. But four months in, I thought, oh, this isn't going to be that life-changing. I've, I've got a guard. I've got somebody that takes me to work. I got a translator. Nobody's speaking Portuguese to me. I'm like, I'm, I'm in my little, you know, balloon like I was, uh, just like I was in yeah. the States. But there was this one guy, Joaquin, he was at the gate every morning when I met the person picking me up. He didn't know any English, so we spoke Portuguese. He was all life. And then on April 4th, 2000, he knocks on my door inside my compound at night, door opens, there stands Joaquin, and he's broken. I could tell something was yeah. wrong. And there standing next to him were his two young daughters, maybe six and four. All I remember is their dirty white sneakers, and they weren't looking at us. They just had their heads down. It was shame on all three of them. And he said, I'm sorry, my employer and your landlord hasn't paid me in a few weeks, and I ran out of options. These are my two daughters, and they have not eaten in two days, and I'm at the end of the rope. I know I'm going to get fired by doing this, but you got to help me. And I was wrecked, Connor. I was yeah. wrecked to say, I'm in food. I'm in agriculture. I'm in this Mecca called Brazil, and I'm a leading agriculture. I talk about hunger. I have never experienced that. To this day, my family and I, we fast some, sometimes one day, sometimes two, every January as a reminder of that moment to say, this moment matters. This is the wrong that must be made right. And I remember within days after that, calling senior management back in Indianapolis and said, I'm sorry, I have to chase this. But I think 
there's there's too many moments that pass by. If I didn't have, and I don't know what, I think I really truly believe God wanted me to have that moment to say, help make your life mission, make this wrong or right. That's my why. My why is hunger, both sides of it. I want hungry leaders and I don't want hungry people. I want them to have good food. And that's the two sides of my why. And I think everybody, I say the three most important days of your life is the day you find your why, you find your calling. The second most important day is the day you do something about it. There's a lot of people that have found it, but they aren't doing anything about it. And the third day is the day we're all going to get judged, which is a retirement party, you know, at your deathbed with your kids, maybe a bigger day in your faith. And you can't have regrets on that day. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a powerful story. I think I really want to talk a lot more about the mission, both your mission, as you put it, but also the Elanco mission. But before we do it, let's get folks familiar with Elanco and what you do. So give the elevator pitch for what the company does. We're all about the health and the well-being of all animals. We believe that when we make animals' lives better, we make life better. And remember the two Ps, protein and pets or food and companionship. We touch almost every life every day by making the health of salmon and tilapia to water buffalo, to cattle, to cats, dogs. You create two outputs that impact everyone's life and COVID showed it. One is a great meal around a table. That's what's gonna be at our new headquarters, a table that shows the power of a table showing, hey, the power of a meal and breaking bread together. And we believe meat, milk, eggs, fish, as we see the growth of that globally, it enables good nutrition, good cognitive skills in young kids to obesity. And hey, the health of that animal makes that meal possible. The second aspect is around companionship and the power we saw during covid of a dog and a cat as populations of dogs and cats grew globally of what it only takes a really strong bond with a pet. You'll never experience anything like it again. And you probably will never go in life without a pet again. We make their lives better. We make pets' lives more active, the the health and the well-being of those pets, longer lives. This industry in the last 10 years has added about 20% to a dog and cat's life. And then on the livestock side, it's about productive, healthy animals, and candidly, less footprint from the animals. So making animals' lives better makes life better. That's Elanco's mission. Our vision is food and companionship enriching life. And uh, we reach uh, animals as an independent company in over 150 countries, 19 species of animals. We're one of the only companies in the world that can do that. And our mission is to take good solutions, products, innovations to them, to veterinarians and farmers all over the world. And originally, it's a company within Eli Lilly. And, and then as you were there, it separates and becomes standalone. I'm curious, that must have been a really interesting experience to live through. I imagine that first day as a standalone company, there was something distinctly different about day zero versus the previous few years or decades. Talk to us about that day. What was that like? Yeah, so 65 years, our our name is after our parent, Eli Lilly and Company, Elanco is uh, coming from that. Our values, our history, we wouldn't be here today without them. But it was truly like 
leaving the home and uh, going to college and experiencing, I think, the exuberance of you. If you remember when you were in college, you know, wow, I'm free and I'm a little scared. <laughs> I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I remember uh, that day in uh, 2018 uh, on Wall Street on the New York Stock Exchange floor. What I will tell you is it was exciting. But I have to tell the rest of the story, which is that excitement. What's a great gift about life is you don't know what tomorrow brings. Right. Because if you knew, you wouldn't probably do the majority <laughs> of, of what you did in life. And that's the case for Elanco. Over the next five years, what we didn't realize is literally when we were up there and the bells ringing and we slammed the gavel to close the market that day, I didn't realize what the five years were ahead. I didn't realize we were going to have three pandemics, COVID, bird flu, and African swine fever. I didn't realize that we had to make a transaction and acquire a large company in the industry because if we didn't, it would go somewhere else and it would change our future. So we had to make the largest transaction ever in our industry. We knew that you know lockdowns were coming and COVID, and we had to do this whole transaction from our, from our apartments and our houses. There was a war that came. There's a recession. There's, I can go on and on. It's not what happens to you. It's how you respond. And I say that quote's been our quote. It's, we must respond. Today, we are a more resilient company than the day we were on New York Stock Exchange. Candidly, we're more excited then because we have weathered a big storm and we have realized the world needs Elanco in it. Healthier animals makes greater people. COVID gave us a glimpse into empty meat cases yeah. and empty shelters of dogs and cats. And everyone in this company said, we must prevail. Yeah. Because there's a world out there that needs us in it. I had so many conversations recently that hit on this point that this period of time, it really is unprecedented. We've had so many black swan moments, outliers, whether they're the pandemic, some of the very particular economic situations that have, have occurred. How do you lead in moments of uncertainty like this? Lots of surveys out there that would say there's pockets of 10,000 team members around the world and many countries that would say, you know, uh, Jeff still has a lot to learn. It's constant learning. Don't ever arrive. I say leadership is influence. It's an art, not a science. It's constant yeah. work. You know this. And so I would just say it's probably a little underwhelming. It's do the basics better. Take care of your people one quarter at a time. Control what we can control and spend lots of time writing handwritten notes, getting on Zoom calls, traveling anytime you can. And whatever you do, don't get bigger than yourself. I give my cell phone to everybody. Write it on every board. Not as a, yes, you can call me. Yes, you can text me. But it's the biggest symbol I've learned the last five years is nobody has any more value than anybody else. All people have equal value. What you do with your value is something else. But stay small, keep your organization flat, stay humble, and be accessible. I think the listeners can hear in your voice, in your stories, what I want to talk about next, which is just the, the passion and the mission behind all you do, which sounds very rooted in doing good for the world while doing well for the business, which is what this podcast is really all about. And a great quote that I, I've seen from you, from Elenco, it is easy to be passionate about my work when feeding people is a moral right. And you and the corporation have a rich history in addressing food insecurity in the country. And I was curious if you'd tell us a little bit about some of those initiatives. 
in in the last decade, we actually said, hey, we're going to break the cycle of hunger in 100 communities around the world. And the whole idea was, hey, over the course of one year, let's create enough enablement that in small little pocketed communities, let's, let's help create enough meals to where people aren't hungry. And we study and watch that and tell stories from it. Myself, I'll just say I've been a very, very blessed to be able to be part of, I started a nonprofit with my wife and some of our customers, uh, the, the ag industry, the, the actual, you know, a shelled ag uh, industry here in the United States, some companies like MPS and Rose Acres, some of the largest protein ag companies, chicken layer companies that came together with me. And I said, hey, how do we create a Tom Shoes? Donations won't work. And it really shows the heart of these farmers as we said, look, nobody really wants medium eggs. <laughs> so it's about 5% of all the eggs. <laughs> so we took the medium eggs. We created a, hey, we'll buy it at cost plus. We go to food pantries. And it started really small here in central Indiana and said, hey, what's your budget? I can buy them for 70 cents. Well, hey, we can get them for 60 cents. Farmer makes a little money. They don't go to waste. And we really became a supply chain. This is Hatch for Hunger. This is the organization. Today, we're in 25 states. And during bird flu, we went from 3 million meals, two ag meals, to 30 million, two ag meals. And we are headed to 100 million. And you put that the math together, that starts to say, boy, you get up to that 100, then 300. That's 6 million meals to 10 million meals a week. Now, just think about this. And this is the... is. A child that gets up in the morning and stops at the stove for 15 minutes as the mom or dad cooks them a scrambled egg and they eat there at the counter for 15 minutes and head off to school. We know what it does to their body. We know what it does to their mind, how powerful it is. You know, the difference of that and the other child that gets the the Pop-Tarts in the bag and eats the sugared meal on the school bus as they go. So it's it's bringing the vision into a reality, into personal stories. It only takes one face of one person that either was shameful and broken and is now seen better of life to change a company. And that's what we try to do. Yeah. It's more about us. We're that's, not, this is not, humility is critical here. Stay small, keep the cause and the company big. I would say the you and Elanco has to stay small and the three C's have to be big. The cause, the customer, and the company. So the company, you really do have a unique, I think pretty ambitious and awesome perspective that, Healthy animals, your business, healthy animals, are key to solving some of the world's most pressing problems and challenges, which is a remarkable perspective to have. And I, you know, have heard you speak to the fact that agriculture and the economic chain that you're part of is going to have to be a major part of the solution to the changing climate. Elinco is the first, I believe, the first independent animal health company to set commitments aligned with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So that's a pretty important impressive statement. And I, and I wanted to know how you got to that. Let me just stop and say the credit is, uh, the credit goes to what I believe are our customers, farmers, veterinarians, pet owners. They're just resilient. Farmers, I would say, who knows the land and the animal any better than them? Who's more concerned about sustainable, long-term viability? I can tell you, I got family in it. Some of my close customer friends, that they care so much about water and land and animals and well-being of animals. I just start there to say that's most important. But as you kind of point and pivot to the future, I think uh, you can't be relevant without being responsible. You want to be on the front cover of the paper and say we do important work? 
Well, then raise the bar in yourself. Uh, we, we spoke at the White House as an industry and as a company to say, hey, we, we had a 12-point plan in 2012 to say we're going to be stewards to take any human-used antibiotics that would cause human resistance to antibiotics out. You've got to be responsible. So that's, that's an example back then, and we've done that, brought a lot of non-antibiotic innovations to keep an animal healthy, give people what they want, animals what they need, and use less environment. The new challenge, Connor, is the environment. Greenhouse yeah. gas is important here. It's a big goal of the United Nations and the U.S. government. But here's the challenge. I kind of say there's there's a few numbers that people don't talk about, which is you can't change the diet of the world. People like meat, milk, eggs, and fish, taste, cost, nutrition, what it does, what people want. So to say to everybody, stop your diet. Well, the world's saying no way. It's growing. It grew significantly the last decade. And the United Nations says it's going to grow 50% faster the next decade. So I'm sorry, don't change the diet. Let's innovate. How do we create climate-neutral farms? And candidly, there's some that are getting close to doing that. And while doing it, create more income for the farmer. And that, that we yep, believe, is yep. the, next, the next open door, which is how we can reduce methane, and we believe we can do that. I mean, it highlights two points that I've noticed through the last few months of, of conversations like this. One, I don't think we spend nearly enough time talking about and really understanding as a country, the farmer, the American farmer, American agriculture, it's a huge part of our day-to-day existence. And, you know, so few people, I think, actually can connect with the reality of the American farmer. And and to your point, how passionate they are about the ground, the earth, like that's their office every day. And they really are, you know, I think, if engaged correctly, part of the solution to the changing climate. Yeah, I think, and they're more conscious too of consumers today. And they also know what the animals in the land need. And at the same time, deal with big issues like, let's take antibiotics out or let's use less environment. I call that the triangle of farming today, which is consumers are at the top, animals land is in one corner and environments in the other. And to be able to handle and deal with that, and I see farmers today, there are farmers in the state of Indiana today that are on a path to be climate neutral dairy farms to where they will actually capture as many emissions as they give away. It's methane. So by reducing that in a significant way, there will be climate neutral farms that actually are selling carbon into a market, creating fuel from biodigesters that are actually making as much money or more off the environment. That's real sustainability as much as they are off the milk. And it's being done. I see climate neutral farming happening before the end of this decade. I see carbon being minted into dollars and large companies, Nestle, Dan On, Cargill, others participating in this inset chain. This is going to happen. It's already happening. It's going to happen a lot in the next two years. And farmers get a vision of that. It'll, it'll become a reality. Well, it, it highlights something, you know, again, that I tend to believe, which is the companies you just mentioned are giant players in our economy. They're giant employers. And they're run by people, humans who have a lot of the same values and beliefs and aspirations for a better future that you articulate. And so I think we need to be inclusive and engaging all of our stakeholders if we're going to actually move the right direction and mitigate the changing climate. So I think that I tend to agree. We can't, this doesn't happen without without those players. Yeah. And I, and I think what I see, maybe I'm the optimist, but I see a Washington, D.C. that's that's got open arms to saying, you know, one of my big call outs to Washington is, look, 
let's all come together. It's government, it's NGOs, it's the farming associations, it's innovators like us to sit around the table. You know, one of the big challenges right now is, look, methane's a short-lived gas. You want to cool the climate by 2030 or slow the warming? It's methane, not carbon. Carbon lasts a thousand years. Methane's nine years. So it's methane. Hey, cows, cows still consume 60% of land that's grazing land that's not used for anything else. You take cows off the climate, try to change the global diet. You got an environmental problem, a health problem, and a nutrition problem, and it's not going to happen. But you give farmers a challenge to say, you got to be footprint. You got to be net zero or climate neutral. How do you do that? It can be done. And I'm seeing an FDA say, okay, what's the new technologies? Maybe we move to footprint labels, less ammonia, less carbon, let's transform. Let's give farmers some subsidies for two years to get a bridge to get to this future faster. Uh, I can go down the line, but I, I, I see more collaboration happening. And I see the leading agriculture and farmers and NGOs, environmental defense, others, all sitting together, leaning in. And I've got a few specific examples of, of technology that we have now that we're trying to bring to the market in the next two years that could reduce methane by 30 to 50% in dairy and cattle operations, it's happening while keeping the bar very high for safety, environmental health, all of that. Yeah. We're looking at big systemic, you know, societal-wide, global, hard problems to solve. And you don't do that as a single stakeholder. You do that as part of a community of, of everybody that's involved. And it's exciting and inspiring to hear you guys are already in that or seeing that because one of my fears might sometimes get overwhelmed with the reality of the headlines in the world is that it's hard to get people around the table anymore that it's hard to get everyone to kind of come together and engage i'm curious how you think about that like how do you in public private civic partnerships navigate getting a variety of stakeholders together to try to move the ball downfield for all of us Trust only can come from being authentic and being real. Having the real topics on the table. Can't be spin. There can't be politics. You got to have an open mind. And candidly, I, I never show an organizational chart in our company. If anyone thinks that it takes a title or it takes a position, then tables aren't as welcoming. And so to me, all of those things are ingredients for Washington. They're, they're ingredients for a, a kitchen table with your family, and they're ingredients to be a leader in a company. Trust is, a, is an outcome. To get trust, you need these things. And what I see today is, you know, there's people come to the table because, one, the agenda is pretty urgent. And two, actually, yeah. there's opportunity in this. And what I see today on this agenda, methane reduction, uh, environmental health through agriculture, is there's a lot of science. There's a lot of opportunity economically and socially, and everyone's at the table saying, hey, we see a vision where this can happen, and that's created the right energy. And candidly, the players that aren't doing it for the right reason, then they need to be pushed out, whether that's ethically yeah. wrong or you know, short-term agendas or political agendas. I think that, that that's where we got we to gotta push people aside. And, and if more people aren't in it, well, then fire me state. Who's changing the world or people with that attitude? Yeah. You said something earlier, and that's that I want to get your reaction to as the last question. You, you said there the three most important moments in life, you know, finding your, yeah. your why and um, starting to act on that, and then the judgment of that. And as you mentioned, it comes in any number of ways from your retirement party to your 
um, yeah. a, fam- a familial conversation with your kids. I'm curious if you had to think about it or talk about it today with your six kids, what do you hope your legacy will be? Well, besides probably a John 15, five Bible verse on my tombstone or brought up at my funeral that, uh, you know, I am, I go back to the grapes, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branches and produce fruit feed. I want to do everything in my life linked back to that. But look, I, this no regrets, hashtag no regrets. I write on a lot of cards, <laughs> you know, it's a quote I saw the other day and I was speaking to a bunch of college kids at Cornell this weekend. And I said, listen, if you think the price of winning is high, wait till you get the bill for regret. The bill for regret is generational. Yeah. No regrets. I had a word last year. We have a word in our family. Every January we huddle, we usually do a little skiing trip and we say, everybody's got to have a word. Everybody's got to give their moments. And I, you know, I always journal, make everybody journal a, a page for the whole year and then read their last five pages and then come and say, what's your five year reflection? And I had this, this courage uh, word. And my son says, you got to listen to song, dad. It was Cody Johnson and a country, not a big, big country fan. <laughs> and it was till you can't. My word last year was can't. The lyrics of this song is if you got a chance, take it, take it while you got a chance. If you got a dream, chase it because it won't chase you back. If you're going to love somebody, hold them as long as you can until you can't. I look at my 80 year old dad differently right now. I look at fighting through all of these five years of storms differently. Because when I'm on the other side of retirement or sitting in a chair where I've been taken out, I don't want to have regret to say, you know, because regret comes when you can't do something. Stay in the game. Be in the game. To every listener out there, being able to do it, hey, we get to do this. We don't have to do this. Is Agendas can be big. Pessimism can be high. But to me, you know, the bill for regret is, is generational. And so what I want to leave my kids with is, look, I want to make animals a differentiator and an X factor. But more importantly, I want to make leaders, whether it's 10 or 10,000, redefine their ceiling and not have regret. And when you live a life in the center of your calling with no regret, man, it is a life not only worth living, but watch out. The ripple effect is huge from those four in the in that conference room in Mexico on that Friday night to yeah. where we are today. I don't know. It might have been them. So, no regrets. And that is a great place to conclude the conversation. A huge thanks to Jeff Simmons for joining me today. Consensus in Conversations hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchel, Chandler Bramstead, and Jeff Rock. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker and strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. See you next week.